Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So today being Thanksgiving, I'm happy to get to give Dharma talk with you. And I would like to reflect about the Dharma and certain wholesome qualities, including, of course, that of gratitude, as well as some corollary qualities of joy, generosity, and humility, too. So those of you who grew up in the United States, like myself, will remember uh, Thanksgiving celebrations from perhaps uh, kindergarten, where you put your hand on a piece of paper and you trace it and you make a little turkey like that. And then maybe there's a pageant in which there's a play of the pilgrim, pilgrims and the um, Indians or Native Americans and sometimes turkeys and how they all get together and have a happy feast and things like that. And I remember sometime later, you know, maybe in middle school, uh, having a history teacher who um, introduced us to the art of critical thinking and (laughs) introduced some facts such as the genocide of the native peoples in this country, and maybe it wasn't also um, hunky-dory like that original um, myth we learned in uh, kindergarten. And then more recently, actually, I've learned um, about Thanksgiving that uh, it was actually made a national holiday by Abraham Lincoln uh, around the time of the Civil War. And at that time, it was considered a day of Thanksgiving, actually, for victories by the side of uh, Lincoln's side, i.e., what is now the Union, right, against the Confederacy. <clears throat> and then meanwhile, the Confederacy was also declaring days of Thanksgiving for their victories against the Union. And then <clears throat> it reminds me a bit of how um, different football teams always credit God with their wins. But, uh, <laughs> and then actually later, I think after World War I, did it start entering textbooks um, as you know, Thanksgiving. And then there was this overlay of this mythology of the pilgrims and the uh, Indians and the Happy Feast and all this stuff, right? So what is true, you know, of this? And even this, I could be wrong. I read this on the internet, this latest bit, you know? <laughs> <clears throat> right? This latest news flash about Thanksgiving could also be wrong. Like, there could be another fact that comes like that. Um, so this is kind of like, you know, body of knowledge or something. Like, what, like what is cr- right? Like, what is true about this? Uh, and we don't know always. You know, we don't know. Um, so I'd like to contrast that actually with the Dharma, so the, the truth of the Dharma. So that which we're exploring here, as um, Pat had said, you know, one of the definitions of Dharma is about truth or actually nature. So we're actually trying to understand something about reality that is there for all of us to see, in fact, in every moment. So an understanding about how things work. And it's this understanding about how things work that if we get it, and if we lead our life in alignment with it, we actually lead a life that is a happy life, a harmonious life, a non-harmful life, a peaceful life.
And the ways in which we live out of alignment with this are the ways in which we engage in conflict, we have stress, we have strain, uh, we have a lot of difficulty. So it's kind of akin to the things we can observe in the physical world. So an example of this is the law of gravity. So in the physical world, the law of gravity is a description about how things work, which uh, Wes gave thanks for today in our feast. <clears throat> so babies don't know about the law of gravity. And when, when you're born, you know, the babies, you see them sometimes doing experiments through which to understand this. So they'll be in a high chair, and they'll be dropping things off, right? <laughs> and see it fall to the ground. And then it's like, oh, like, well, what if I did it on this side, right? Like, you know, <laughs> also falls to the ground, right? Uh, like, what if I'm actually not looking at it, you know? Like, also falls to the ground, right? So then after a while, you get the picture, you know. Um, and children, as they develop, you understand the law of gravity. And you may not be able to know the physical, the formula and physics for it, but basically you understand how it works, and you start to live your life in alignment with that. So then, you know, by the time you're a grown-up, if I'm going to place this glass of water, you know, I will not place it in midair. So I, because I understand the law of gravity and what will happen, you know, it will break, there will be water, you guys will be splashed in the front row, right? Um, so then to live in alignment with that, uh, I place it on this table. And if by chance something happens, like, you know, accidentally this thing gets, you know, swept off and it falls, then uh, I don't have to spend a lot of time stressing about it. You know, like, why me? Like, why this happened to me? You know, <laughs> right? Because I know the law of gravity. Like, oh, yeah, of course, that's, that, that happened. I can just go pick it up, put it there, and then that's it. No, it doesn't have to be extra drama, right? So similarly, actually, I would, I would suggest that uh, the Dharma, the truth of the Dharma, is stuff that's there for us to see. And it's, it's kind of as basic as the law of gravity, but it's more difficult for us to see it through our delusion, and also just because we're not paying attention. But it's the kind of thing where it's true, regardless of who you are. It's true, regardless of whether you're looking or not. Right hand, left hand, Tuesday, Sunday. You know, these aspects of the Dharma of how reality works, of what causes suffering, you know, of what's true about ourselves, of how our body and mind system works. You know, these things are true regardless. And through the practice, what we're doing is actually aligning ourselves with this. So through the practice of awareness, through cultivating wholesome qualities, through concentration, we're actually paying attention and seeing this stuff over and over again in our own experience directly so that we know without a doubt, not because someone else told us, not because we read it in a book, <clears throat> not because we have to have some blind faith, we know how things work. And then we naturally align our lives with that, so we live in accordance with that. So at the point at which you get aligned, and in some ways the, the alignment you could say, like you know, the term enlightenment is used, awakening, you know, so I would say it could be seen as some way of deeper alignment with the truth of the way things are. So the extent to which you have some alignment, you know through your own direct experience what is true about change, for example, about who you are and what is true about uh, an idea of yourself, about the nature of thought, about suffering itself. So it's really as basic as if, you know, when I stick my hand in this glass of water, 
I know the water is wet. And someone could come to me and say, like, oh, that's not wet, that water's not wet. And I know it's wet, and I know what the temperature is, because I know it directly. So they can say, oh, but I have these degrees, and I'm like this, and I have this title, and I have this much more money than you, and it doesn't matter at all, right? Like, I don't have to have any doubt in that, because I know that through my own direct experience. And it doesn't even have to be a fight. Like, I don't even have a drama with them. Like, you know, no, it's not. It, you know, because I just know that on a very deep level. So I have actually a security from that. You know. So this is what all of you are developing in the practice, actually. You know, through seeing, through your own attention, through learning. And I hear you learning this. You know, I see you learning this. We hear you in the, the meetings that we have, uh, developing this understanding. And it's a beautiful thing to see for all of us. So gratitude is one aspect of a wholesome quality that can develop when we're actually paying attention. So we've talked about some of the different qualities of of metta, of kindness that we can develop, uh, other ones of joy, of compassion, uh, these positive qualities of heart that we can intentionally cultivate through practices, but that also become the natural way that the heart is through seeing clearly, you know, through wisdom. So I want to describe a little bit about this, the connection between them. <clears throat> now, some of you who have, you know, the more aversive mindset, as Andrea was describing well last night, might be thinking like, oh, gratitude and joy, you know, people who want to focus on that stuff are like not seeing the real problem. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, even you yourself sat up here a few nights ago and talked about dukkha and uh, unsatisfactoriness, and so how are you not telling us to be all Pollyanna about this? And, you know. But actually it's kind of like a natural correlation. So if we actually get impermanence, you know, if we understand that every moment everything is always changing, and there is this fragility to life, you know, there's, a, there's a real fragility to life. We don't know how long our life is going to last. We don't know how long anything is going to last. We have assumptions about what we know, about how long we will live, or who's going to be here, or what this is going to be like. But if we can see through and see, like, these are just thoughts, these are our expectations and our assumptions, and they may be true and they may not be true, then we actually rest in this truth about the fragility of all of our existence, the uncertainty of it. And there's this poignancy. So the truth is that everything is impermanent and everything is always disappearing, disappearing, disappearing. But also, the corollary side is that there's a constant appearance too. Appearing, appearing, appearing. And if we can meet this appearance with a fresh eye, seeing it for what it is without overlaying our projection on it already, then there can be this sense of joy and actually gratitude for the mystery of it. You know? It's all much more wondrous than our ideas about how life should be. Even our own being is more wondrous than how our lives are projected to be. So I bet for most of you, for example, when you were children, you never thought, oh yeah, when I grow up, I'm going to go on a 10-day silent meditation retreat for Thanksgiving, <laughs> right? <laughs> 
probably for most people. Some people maybe were raised as a, you know, Buddhist and, and did think they might do that. But for most people here that I see, probably it's a bit of a surprise in some way. Like, I don't find myself here, you know. Or even if you think about, you know, what you're doing in your adult life, you know, as your profession or job or where you live or, you know, different things like that, stuff that you know. It's beyond the scope of what you as a child had as a vision of what is possible. In fact, the world is beyond the scope of what you knew as a child to be possible. So even, you know, the internet, right? <laughs> like 20 years ago, that was like very, uh, the, the world worked in very different ways. You know, the companies that existed were very different companies. You know, the world is changing at this rapid pace. And it's actually beyond all of our ideas. You know, as, altogether it comes from different people's ideas and creation, but... There's not one person who like has it all figured out. Another aspect of, of gratitude that, that supports gratitude is our resting in uh, interconnection. So the truth of interconnection. And we had uh, some beautiful reflections of that during our uh, meal, our lovely meal that we had uh, today of all different sorts of recognizing the ways in which so many people were connected and are connected, not just to that meal, but actually every time that we eat food. You know. Understanding the connection of our own place with even those who don't have food. No. Interconnection. Wes always gives a good kind of going like intergalactic interconnection too, right? <laughs> it took me a while to think about what he meant with that, you know, interstitial, the ice age thing, you know, like that, right? Um, but it's true. That's kind of a macro lens in which all of these different, these different aspects are true. And it's like changing the lens and how we usually see ourselves. Um, but it's always actually true. So our bodies have been nourished by the food and drink that we've taken in since the time of our birth. Our bodies have been nourished by the air that we've been breathing. We're all breathing the same air now. So it's kind of like we're all connected through the air here. Even our bodies are made three-quarter of water, our physical bodies, like scientifically speaking. And I've heard it said that it takes about seven days for the kind of water in our system to sort of be fully replaced. So now day seven of our retreat, we're all actually made three quarters of the same thing. <laughs> of spirit rock water, all of us. <laughs> right? From wherever this reservoir is that it comes from. Um, so we seem different, but actually we're substantially uh, connected in this way. So what are actually the obstacles also to gratitude? Because there's so much we could be grateful for all the time. So one is that we don't see clearly. So we don't see clearly and so we don't actually appreciate things. And we usually don't appreciate things until they change and they get taken away from us. So if you think about your health, for example, you know, our physical body is a, a fragile organism. There's so many different systems that are operating all the time, like keeping us healthy, you know, most of which are not consciously operated by us. And then at different times, like something or another goes a little bit awry. And for me, I probably, you know, any given time, there's like some or another minor to major thing, like not okay in the body. Like, 
little cut or stub toe or sometimes a cold or, you know, this or that. And for some people, there's something much more substantial, you know, systemic challenging going on. But most of the time, we take for granted the systems that are working fine. So we take for granted, for example, you know, all of our teeth being okay until one of them starts to hurt. And then all the attention goes to that one tooth. But we usually aren't grateful for the other teeth, (laughs) right, that are not hurting and that have been chewing up the food and ripping up the food and all of that. We become very focused on the negative, so the stuff that's not working for us. You know, if there's many different categories in your life, say of, um, you know, your job and your financial health and uh, your relationships and your family, maybe your creative life and uh, how your car is going and your spiritual life and this and that. Uh, And in a world in which everything's always changing, they're all kind of dancing around, you know. There's ups, there's downs and all these different things. Sometimes... You have a lot of friends, sometimes your friends move away, sometimes your job is good, sometimes your job is bad, sometimes uh, you have more money, sometimes you have less money. And usually we get very focused on the ones that are not working well, and we get actually kind of obsessed with them, to the exclusion of the other ones. So it's like, oh, why do I have this going on? Why do all my friends move away? Like, oh, you know. Depending on your personality, you can start to really feel sorry for yourself, and uh, isolate and you know, kind of go down a, a spin about that. And sometimes very difficult things do happen. So you might have a significant impact with something in your health, or you might lose your job or your house, or someone close to you dies. So in these cases, it might feel difficult. Like, how can I be grateful during this time? You know, what is there to be grateful for? In some ways, it's helpful to notice the tendency of the mind to really collapse around that in a very self-centered way. So this is what the unenlightened mind does. The unenlightened mind is constantly creating a story of me. Yeah, everything's about me uh, and how this affects me and is not really that focused on other people at all. But I can guarantee you that whatever the difficulty that you're facing, no matter how profound that is, someone else has experienced that Uh, in the past. In fact, probably is experiencing that right now. And you are, in fact, part of a fellowship of people going through that, whether you know them or not. And if you're able to hold it in this larger kind of view, it really shifts your relationship to that. So it's possible to experience that as part of the human condition, if you will. So whatever that is, loneliness or... uh, health problem, a divorce, uh, death of a loved one. So there's a, a famous story from the uh, time of the Buddha where there was a, a woman named Kisa Gotami, and uh, she had a baby, and the baby got sick and the baby died. And I know from uh, the experience I've had with friends and with uh, Dharma students now also, this is one of the most difficult things to happen you know, in a, in a human life, is to have a child die. It's a very, very tragic thing. Right? So Kisa Gotami, she was in denial about this, and she kind of went a little bit crazy with it. So she took the corpse of the baby and carried it all around and, and went to people asking, like, um, can you help my baby? My baby is sick, can you help my baby? And, and people were like, oh, 
your ba- I don't think we can help your baby. Like, your baby is dead. You know? But she couldn't hear it. You know, she couldn't hear that. She wasn't really like, no, my, my baby's sick. She would go somewhere else. And, you know. and so finally someone said, like, oh, I know a physician for you. You should go talk to the Buddha. So, so she went to see the Buddha and she said, you know, my baby uh, is sick and I've heard you could heal him. Can you heal him? And the Buddha said, I want you to go and uh, collect uh, a mustard seed. And she was like, all right, I can do that. He was like, but I want you to collect the mustard seed from a house where nobody has died. So there has been no death of brothers, sisters, children, father, mother, relatives. So she's okay. So she goes and knocks on the door and says, can I have mustard seed? And they said, oh, yeah, sure. And then she says, wait, has someone died in your family in this house? And they say, oh, yeah, actually, you know, my grandfather died. So then she goes to the next house, asks for a mustard seed, they're willing to give it to her. And then she says, oh, has anyone died here? It's like, oh, yeah, oh, very sad, actually. My brother died. Yeah. So on and so forth. So she does this over and over and over and over again. And then it starts to dawn on her. You know, she starts to realize that she is not alone in this predicament. You know, she is part of the human condition with this death. So then the story goes that she actually goes and um, buries the baby. She's kind of brought to her senses by this. She's pulled out of her... Uh, her kind of narcissistic sorrow in this. And then she goes to the Buddha for refuge because she can see that he, he understands something about life, about death. So helping ourselves to see this, you know, see what is actually true and pull ourselves out of our story. And so much of the time it's actually the story that creates suffering for us. So I know you have been paying attention in uh, the practice and you've had a week of being with your mind, your body, uh, without having that much stuff to distract yourself with. So probably you've noticed in some way that you're actually crazy. (laughs) (laughs) You might not have known this before you came, uh, or maybe you knew a little bit, but now you know it really deeply. Uh, that actually uh, the mind is kind of crazy. And uh, we could say, like, there's a lot of delusion, you know? Like, there's a lot of stories going on. Um, We're living in these imaginary worlds. We're creating different scenarios and inhabiting them, you know? And not just, you know, like I said, that picture of the tiger where it's like a one-time thing. Like, we're creating, like... uh, networked labyrinths of delusion, you know, (laughs) like stories and movies and, you know, huge things. And the more you look, you can see like, wow, this is, this is deep, you know, this is like, (laughs) it really is. And it's very humbling. If you actually really look, it's, it's very humbling. Many times people find it at first, you know, disturbing and like, don't want to look at it. But I would suggest that a helpful perspective to take is just to be very humbled by it. Like, this is the power of delusion, you know. Like, this is basically the unenlightened mind going through its paces. And in some ways, everyone's working with their own unique version of this. But in some ways, we're all reading from the same book, you know? I mean, we really are. (laughs) So, uh, you know, even some of these, the stories, like, we give examples and people are like, wow, are you reading my mind or something, you know? And it's actually just like, no, for example, like, you know, the Vipassana romance, that's like a stock delusion category, (laughs) you know? 
And there really is a quality of like, insert photo here, push play, and like, you know, <laughs> let it roll, right? So you have to see that, you know, start to see these patterns like as they're going on. Uh, and be humbled by them, you know, really be humbled by them, by the power of delusion. Sometimes the delusions are actually ones that are very painful too. You know, like um, the delusion, the idea, we create this idea of like, I am not worthy, you know, of something. Or uh, we create an idea like, like there's some problem or something that we're wrestling with. And we kind of are like so, we get so trapped in that it becomes actually like a comfortable delusion. See if this is familiar. So even though on some level we know it's not true, and on some level like we don't want to inhabit that. Like we can see that we're making this up. But there's another way in which even though it's very painful and it's false, it's actually known. So like the mind goes back to that, you know. And it, it reminds me of like, you know, I've heard stories of like animals who have been in a cage a long time. And then, you know, the door gets opened and they could leave, but then they're used to the cage. So like they stay in the cage, you know. So, so this is like what you can see happening with the mind too. So, you know, you see the same story going like over and over again. It's, and on some level you can see that it's delusion, but another way, like it keeps playing out. Right? So really just hold that whole pattern with a lot of compassion, you know, a lot of compassion for the unenlightened mind playing out its patterns over and over again. With most of these, these wholesome qualities, like, for example, with metta, this, this quality of, of kindness, uh, you know, we've been cultivating the, the, this through the practice. And it, I think it's helpful to reflect that, actually, these wholesome qualities are there. They're kind of the natural way that the heart would be, but they're obstructed. So they're obstructed by our delusion. They're obstructed by unwholesome qualities that we take to be ourselves. So if you think about the, the force of gratitude, like why are we not grateful all the time? Like life is amazing and this mystery and we don't know when it's going to end. And some of it is because of the pattern of wanting and of deficiency that's there. You know, because we believe in this illusory idea of ourself. You know, because we're entranced by this non-existent ego who is the star of all our thoughts you know, who is the, the center stage actor and who we spend so much time fretting about. So gratitude can come if we're able to let go of the wanting, you know, and from living from this sense of deficiency. If we can actually step out of this prison in some ways. a couple of, of corollary kind of um, practices. So one is um, that of, of joy. And I think it's been mentioned during our practice of metta about appreciative joy as also one of the Brahma Viharas. So this is mudita, so the dorm mudita that some of you are staying in. So cultivation of this quality of joy is uh, allowing yourself to become happy at the happiness of others. So that means that you're not only happy when good things happen to you, but also that you can actually be happy for other people when something happens for them. 
And it's an amazing quality. It's such an unusual quality that we don't even have a good word for it in English. You know, like appreciative joy, sympathetic joy. Like you don't really hear these terms said very much, you know. So what's the opposite? The opposite that comes up often is a sense of jealousy or like, oh, why'd that person get that? Like I wanted to get that. But cultivating this, this quality is both a very wholesome thing and as um, the Dalai Lama has quoted as saying that it increases your own chances of happiness by seven billion. Right? <laughs> so because not only can you be happy when something good happens for yourself, but you can be happy when something good happens for anyone that you see. And this includes people, it includes actually animals. Like dogs are actually very good uh, subjects for practicing mudita because they have like big wagging tails, you know. And you don't even have to be happy about what that being is happy about, right? So dogs are happy if they find like a piece of old bread on the sidewalk or gum or something, you know. They're like ecstatic. It's like, you know, a great day for them, right? <laughs> uh, so even if you would not be ecstatic for finding that, uh, you can just see the joy and like be happy for their happiness, you know. So usually this is something that we only have for those who are closest to us, you know. Like those who are nearest and dearest, we can be happy like, oh, you got that job, or oh, I'm happy that you're in that relationship, or you know, something like that. So intentionally cultivating this practice is like uh, allowing yourself to realize you could do this with anyone. You, know? you could just see people walking by smiling and being friends and just be happy for them. You know? uh, and in that way, like cultivate this sense of joy like throughout. So this can disrupt some of the delusion. You know, this disrupts that limited sense of me. Like, here's me, I need to get stuff to be happy, and if that person gets it, then maybe I'll get less. So that's the uh, deficiency mindset. You know, that's the wanting mindset. Uh, It also is not a very good strategy because... You know, as I was saying, these different areas in which it's like, oh, how's my house, how's my job, how's my relationships and stuff. You know, our, our implicit strategy for happiness from the unenlightened mind is like, uh, you know, on a level of 1 to 10, I want them all to get to 10 and I want them to stay there. Right? <laughs> and I want them to stay there forever. Like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and get all of them to 10. I'm going to try and keep them there. Right? Um, and it just won't work in a world in which everything is changing and things are not out of your contr- in your control. So your friends will move away. Sometimes you have good neighbors, sometimes bad neighbors, sometimes your health is good, sometimes health is bad. So we have to find some more resilient means of uh, recipe for happiness than that. And the promise of this path is the happiness that is beyond changing circumstance. You know, there's a contentedness that's possible that's beyond, like, how's my house, how's my job, how's this, how's that. Another aspect of, of bringing, bringing in gratitude and letting go of the usual limited lens that we have is a sense of humility. So understanding that we have a certain perspective on things, but we don't see the whole big picture. You know, we don't actually know. Like, we don't actually know a whole lot. You know? We think we do, and the mind is constantly making assumptions about what we know. But there's actually very little that we do know. So even about something that happens, you know, is it, a good, is it good news or is it bad news? So there's a, a, 
a folktale that's about a farmer who has a horse. And the farmer has this very nice horse. And all the people in the town say, like, wow, you're so lucky, that's such a beautiful horse. Uh, that's so great. What good fortune. And he says, like, don't know, maybe. And the horse runs away. And then uh, people come to him and say, like, oh, that's so too bad, your horse ran away. Like, so sorry, that's terrible news. And he says, maybe. Don't know. Then it turns out the horse ran away to the woods, but then found a horse mate, and then uh, had uh, horse babies. <laughs> Whatever you call them, foals. And then they came back, actually. So then suddenly, uh, he has all these horses, right? So then uh, people are like, wow, that's great. Now you have like, all these horses and the babies and stuff. How fortunate, he says, maybe, right? Then he has, uh, you know, his children start to train the horses so they can ride them and use them in the farm. And um, the horses are wild, so they kick them and um, toss them off. And so then the children, like, break legs, break arms, different things, right? So then people are like, oh, that's terrible. Like, you know, terrible misfortune. The family, everyone's broken things, horses, bad, right? And he says, maybe, right? So then there's a war in the kingdom. (laughs) And uh, everyone gets drafted of a certain age, but... All of his children get to stay home because they're all broken legs, broken arms, things like that. <laughs> so you see where this goes, right? It's like good news, bad news, good news. You know, I could play this out for a while, but um, it's like we don't know. And if you think back on your own life, even things that were like good fortune, bad fortune, at the time you thought like, oh, it's terrible I lost this job or like it's terrible I have to make this move. Then actually from that circumstance, maybe something new happened that was beyond even your idea, you know of what was possible, you know. Uh, And this happens to people in different ways, Um, you know, more dramatically when, like, for example, people who are late to get to a plane flight and they miss the plane flight and then that plane flight is one that crashes or something. So initially it's like, oh, it's terrible, it's bad, you know, and then it's like, wow, that was lucky, you know. So we just don't know, you know, and it's helpful to hold with humility just our ideas about what is good and bad, you know, how things play out, because we really don't have the whole big picture of it. So it doesn't mean you have to go to the opposite, but like, can we actually rest in this sense of wonder? You know, can we rest in this sense of not knowing? And it requires a courage. It requires a vulnerability. And it's like resting in, in trust, but it is really resting in the truth of the way things are. That the thoughts we have in our mind do not have the whole picture. So the Buddha talked about this um, quality of gratitude as one that is um, very rare. And uh, he talked about two people who are rare in the world. So people who volunteer selflessly to help other people and uh, the person who is actually grateful for help, who's grateful and thankful for a kindness that's done. So why is it that we aren't grateful for things that are done? It seems quite obvious to do that when it's said like that. So mostly, again, it's because we're focused on ourselves. You know, we're kind of self-centered. The Buddha said, for example, that the uh, one, one categorical gratitude that is helpful to recognize is gratitude towards your parents or towards those who raised you. And uh, it's very rare to find children, small children, who are actually grateful to their parents. You know? uh, 
And I found that, like, I don't know that I was that grateful when I was a child, but now that I'm of an age, with I don't have my own children, but I have friends who have children and um, relatives who have children. And even actually this week, uh, two people in my close circles had babies um, born. And they're a lot of work, aren't they? You know, <laughs> like it takes a lot of work to keep a human baby alive, you know, like sleepless nights and feeding them and changing the diapers and then um, keeping them warm. And, you know, like it's really a, a ton of work for somebody to keep the baby going or usually multiple people. So the fact that we are here alive and relatively thriving is a testament to the fact that some grown-ups or some, you know, a conglomeration of people like did that for us. And even if they did it in kind of a messed up way and, you know, didn't do some things well and so on, uh, you know, is it possible to us to actually recognize that we are here because of the efforts of someone else? You know, we were so helpless at some point. Like, so helpless. These babies can do nothing, you know. Like, the like human babies are, you know, the, the horse babies actually, within a few hours, they stand up and walk, right? But they, human babies for years, you know, it's like poor attention and... Uh, food and milk and, you know, human babies will literally kill themselves in the way that, you know, I was talking about like putting stuff in the mouth and touching electricity, like so many ways you have to watch them, right? So someone spent a lot of time keeping us alive, you know, or probably a variety of people did. So now that I'm sort of part of the group of adults who do that for children, like I can see how much effort that takes, (laughs) you know. And like now on the other side, it's like, wow, yeah, that's, that's really something, you know, it takes a lot. So now I can feel, of course, the gratitude. But I can't say that when I was a child, I had that wisdom. You know, we're sort of like just taking stuff and, and without that perspective. So you can spend time, of course, you know, being grateful for these things as you think about them. And then being grateful for uh, specific blessings that you have in your life. So all of us, you know, as Andrea mentioned, have enough health to be here. Uh, we actually have had the opportunity to hear the Dharma teachings, which is considered rare. Uh, then to have a sound enough mind uh, and heart to actually be able to take them in. So even at the time of the Buddha, you know, some people came and heard the teachings and like became awakened from this master teacher. And um, actually, according to the story, when he was uh, first going to teach, right after he was enlightened, he was walking, and the first person he met, who he talked to, said, like, like oh, like, who are you? you know, he looked kind of like he was glowing a bit, and he's like, looks like something special. And he said, like, oh, I'm awakened. And the guy was like, oh, okay, bye, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and he walked on, and so that guy, like, got nothing from him, and, uh, you know, he didn't have sort of the, the paramis to understand, like, who this person was. And, you know, the Buddha also was just learning to be a teacher, too. So he was like, oh, okay, better approach that differently next time, right? (laughs) 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 That didn't really work so well, you know. Um, But there's something about, like, like paramis, actually. So so appreciating the wholesome qualities, you know, of our own hearts and minds that allows us to take this in. And I can see this now as as a teacher, too. Like, uh, you know, I I taught, um, I I was actually away on... um, on Tuesday in the afternoon, I was teaching a, a class. It was a beginning meditation class. I had teach the last session. And um, it was a class in which people, um, we start out with 10 minutes of meditation, you know, in the first class. 
and then they're supposed to do 10 minutes a day at home, right, for that week. Then next day, class week later, we did 15 minutes, then they're supposed to do 15 minutes, then 20 minutes, then, you know, so on. So last class, grand finale, we did half an hour of the meditation, you know, together. Um, and it was very sweet. People were like, wow, was it really half an hour? Like, that would have seemed so long in the beginning, but like, no, I could do that. And, you know, they had a, a sense of pride and uh, happiness about that. And we were talking about, like, what can you do next if you're really interested? And um, so I told them you can go to day-long meditation. Um, you know, of course, you can continue to practice at home. And I said, you know, actually, uh, I've just come from uh, a 10-day meditation retreat that I'm teaching. And so they were like, well, what do you mean? Like, what's that like? And um, uh, so then I described, actually, what we're doing here. You know, it's like, oh, so people come there, and then, you know, from the moment they wake up, they're practicing this mindfulness, right? So, you know wake up, feet hit the ground, feel the feet, you know, go to the meditation, then going down to breakfast, eat mindfully, and then, you know, I went, basically went through the day that you're going through, you know, and then repeat that ten times, right? <laughs> and uh, it was very sweet. There were, some of the people were like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Like, and, and, but a few of the people were like, oh, that's so inspired, that's so cool, do you think I could do that? And, um, you know, took down the name of Spirit Rock, and we're going to look on their website. So, so you can feel happy that you've actually inspired some people to think, like, <laughs> it's possible. It's very sweet to, to see that. You know, even if you think, like, oh, I don't know if this is having an effect. You already have had an effect on some people to inspire them for the possibility. And you can see the people who have that orientation, you know, and also who have the humility to want to do that and, you know, wholesome qualities. It's like, it's not everybody has that, you know. And it's not to be arrogant about that, but just appreciate that you have the soundness of mind and body, you know, to be here, uh, and the wholesome qualities that allow you to take in the Dharma, to recognize that. So now we'll shift to um, advanced perspective on gratitude. So advanced perspective on gratitude is where you even appreciate the difficult things. So this is where the things that most thwart you uh, can be actually things that you would be grateful for. So how is this possible? So if you, if you reflect on your own intentions for growth, for understanding, you know, for development, for awakening, and if you keep that as an intention, then in some ways um, we could consider it helpful when there's some sign of uh, where are our edges, you could say. You know. And that edge could be anything. You know, it could be the person snoring in your room that's really like causing you a lot of agitation. It could be uh, someone who's uh, doing something that annoys you uh, in the meditation hall. It could be you know, some difficulty you have uh, in your home life or something like that. So in some ways, if you want to develop into a wise and loving person, uh, and you hold that as a perspective, these are helpful uh, kind of alarm bells for us about ways in which we're not aligned, you know, or, wa- or areas for growth, I, could, I would say. Yeah. So you can imagine, like, in some ways, so your parents or, you know, the adults, like, in your life, they helped you to grow up to a certain extent. And then, now, we kind of have to finish the job ourselves. You know, and in some ways, I f- see practice as a way of learning how to become fully mature as a human being. You know, becoming mature as a wise and loving human being. And when people make us mad or annoy us or tick us off or 
something isn't going according to our wishes. You know, that's showing us where is our area for growth. Of course, the people who are telling us like, oh, you're great, you're really smart, you're really good looking, you're really wise, you know, like that's easy to like those people, isn't it? <laughs> like it's easy to, to feel fine with that kind of thing. But it's like when people are not ac- acting according to our wishes or when our body is not acting according to our wishes or, uh, you know, when the teachers aren't acting according to our wishes, like that's a good place to see. Like, oh, look, okay. So here's where this sense of suffering or difficulty can be our alarm bell. So it's a sign of our, you know, misalignment in some ways. So it's like, okay, let me get interested in that. You know, let me get interested in that and see that. So the kind of advanced perspective then is that the enemy is actually the friend. So whatever it is that you're perceiving right now as the enemy in your practice, in your life, uh, in your situation, like that is the one who is actually calling your attention to an area in which there's something going on in our perspective and our relationship to that that may not be like fully developed, like maybe we're not fully grown up in some way. So then our instruction is to get interested in that. You know, get interested in that and start to pay attention, like what is going on there? And then you just apply the practice as best you can. You know, you see as, as Andrea was describing, like, okay, what's going on? If there's aversion, there's something unpleasant. Like, what's the story with that? Or what is some underlying perspective that I'm holding around this difficult situation? Sometimes I like to to see, like, okay, what is the the idea of self that has arisen? Usually when there's some difficulty or struggle, it's because there's some idea of self that's arisen. Like, here's me and here's the other in some way. So what is the, who is the self who has arisen? What is the self that I'm clinging to in this situation? You know? What is that illusion of self that I'm not seeing through? You know? And get used to noticing what it feels like when that solidity arises. You know, a sense of solidity or a sense of arrogance or uh, you know, meanness. I start to track how that feels like in the body, in the mind, as that manifests. And also start to notice how it feels when it's gone, too. So get the scent of freedom. You know, get the scent of when, the, when there's, it's absent. When things are flowing along, just experience, coming, going, this, that, right? And then start to get the feel of what it feels like when delusion is there. You know, when there's this solidifying like that. So both are important. You know, getting, getting the sense of... of Freedom is good also to kind of acclimatize the system to that. When is there peace? When is there contentedness? There is. And then when is there some kind of obstruction that's arising? When is there a sense of self? When is there greed, hatred? So get to know those flavors in your own experience. So here's where, you know, we we have to end up looking at these things and, and basically tasting them, you know, over and over again so we know for ourselves, you know, so we know just like the water is wet like that. So we know that flavor of, of greed. We know the flavor of hatred. You know, we can sense that like sooner and sooner as that starts to arise in the system. So would that you could just notice that the one time and learn from it and be done with it. <laughs> but it seems like for most of us, we actually have to learn these lessons kind of over and over again. And I know many of you know this experience. And uh, you know, people have come to the, uh, the meetings and you're like, 
okay, I can see that this is what's going on, like this particular pattern of irritation or something, um, but it's still going on. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, uh, like the first time I I fell into this, this anger about this thing and then, you know, I figured it out, but I thought I figured it out, and then I fell into it again, the anger, right? So there's a nice um, short parable about this uh, that I will read to you that's called um, The Life in Five Short Chapters. <laughs> and this is by someone called Portia Nelson. And, um, so chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It takes forever to find a way out. So that's basically you and the difficult mind state of whatever, right? Okay. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. Uh, I pretend I don't see it. <laughs> I fall in again. <laughs> I can't believe I'm in the same place. Uh, it takes a long time to get out. <laughs> Chapter three. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it, but still I fall in. It's a habit. But my eyes are open. I know where I am. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hall on the sidewalk. I walk around it. And chapter five, I walk down a different street. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there may be many sub-chapters in each chapter. (laughs) So be patient. You know, be patient as we go through with these different uh, chapters. And notice if there's resistance to falling in the same hole, you know. Uh, Because there can be an idea of self in that too. Like, I already did this. I learned this lesson already. Why is this coming again? Like, why am I still suffering? Right? There's a me in that too. Or a resistance to that. That's sort of the pretending I'm not in the hole, right? <laughs> Even when you are. Right? So just notice, wherever you are, you know, trying to be as honest as possible, as compassionate as possible, uh, and then work with it from wherever you are. So gratitude, joy, uh, humility, and um, generosity is another piece of this too. So when we have this sense of generosity, when we can cultivate generosity, it naturally can both come from gratitude and gratitude can come from uh, that. So they feed each other too. And I'll say if there's any um, you know, explanation for my own um, being here as a teacher, I think, a lot of it also comes from a sense of gratitude uh, to the Dharma, to my own teachers, to the practice, um, to actually the offerings that have been made to me to help me on the path. So I think it, it was very meaningful for us to take part in the, the ritual and Thanksgiving of um, serving food. Um, so it was a very beautiful way to uh, connect with all of you. Um, and it reminded me of the time when I was in the monastery, uh, spent time in monastery, and then, so as part of the ritual is people would come and offer food to us. And in the monastery I was in, we didn't go on an alms round. Um, the women didn't go on the alms round, but we had our bowls, and people would come uh, to the monastery, um, villages and different people, and offer food. So they'd come, and each person would have a dish, and they'd put it into your bowl like that. And many times it was people who were actually very poor or, uh, you know, brought, like, the best of the stuff that they had uh, to offer. And I found it very inspiring and moving. 
it's like, oh, they have so much faith in the practice or appreciation for people who are doing the practice that uh, they're offering food. And literally, uh, like, I owe my practice to these people. You know, like, the merit for my practice goes for these people. Like, we are interconnected in this way, you know. Had they not brought the food, I would not have the energy to continue this. And similarly for the teachers that supported me, that guided me, you know, I have immense gratitude for that. And for whatever the forces internal were that guided me, you know, to find these, these different uh, practice centers and teachers, you know, with appreciation. And still, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see, like, the different thoughts uh, and seeing through thoughts. So, um, you know, this Thanksgiving retreat, they, they uh, actually ask you for... Uh, they ask us as teachers to sign up to teach retreats like a long time ahead of time, so like 16 months ahead of time for these things, um, for the schedule and you know scheduling and stuff. And uh, so, uh, I think Andrea asked me in like uh, April 2012 about doing this, and I think we had just set a retreat together, right? And um, I was being a bit dodgy about like committing to it because um, it seemed like a long time away, you know. Um, and also I was like, Thanksgiving, I don't know. I don't know what I'll be doing, you know, hard to say, you know, right. <laughs> so finally she pinned me down and was like, no, you got to tell me, like, you know, can you do this or not? So I was like, ah, okay. So I was like, yeah, I'll do it. You know, I, I like teaching these longer retreats. Um, uh, but I was like, Andrea, you should know that my uh, imaginary future girlfriend is already mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> she was, uh, she was uh, very, you know, mature and equanimous about that. And it was like, she seemed to be willing to take that risk. And um, so then, you know, I still had ambivalence, but I put it on the calendar. And then, um, you know, as it came through the year, like I've taught a lot of shorter retreats, you know. So then um, I actually started to get really excited about teaching this retreat. Like, it's really nice to get to be here for a longer period of time and to see people's practice unfolding and even just as a team to be here um, together. So we started to have emails like a few months before the retreat, you know, talking about uh, what, who's giving talks or schedule or something. And I was like, oh, I'm so psyched for this retreat. Like, you know, so first ambivalence, then like really psyched for the retreat, you know. Then the week before the retreat, I got sick. So I had this cold. So then two days before the retreat, I call Andrea and I'm like, Andrea, I'm sick. <laughs> I don't know if I should come. I don't want to get people sick. Let's talk about it. You know. <laughs> so then, pessimistic mind, right, comes in. You know, idea like, oh, bad idea. I signed up for a retreat. You know. So then we talked about it, and you know, came, and then um, my colleagues nicely sort of shuffled things around. So then, you know, I had a few days to, to like get better and stuff, and. So I say this just to point out, like, yeah, this is just the mind, you know, in relationship to these things. And then, you know, I don't know how it's going to be. So then the mind is like, ambivalent. Oh, yay, it's great. Oh, it's bad, you know. <laughs> and probably many of you had this similar experience. And, you know, like you signed up at some point, right? And then it's like, yay, I'm going on a retreat. Oh, why did I sign up for a retreat? Oh, <laughs> right? Uh, so I'm saying it's just like take it all with a grain of salt, you know. Like if we can start to see these patterns of mind, um, uh, it's like, oh, okay, you know, just like the farmer, right? Like, oh, could be, like, great, excited, okay, could be, like, bad, you know, could be, you know. Uh, and actually, I'm very happy to be here, you know. <laughs> so, it's good. So just seeing how things unfold, you know, and we don't know, 
you know, we don't know how they're going to unfold. We don't know everything, uh, but cultivating a sense of gratitude, cultivating generosity, um, cultivating joy, are cultivating the wholesome qualities that are both the result of seeing clearly, but also support us in actually seeing clearly. And then what can be the result of that? So, you know, if we cultivate this gratitude and as we cultivate our practice, as we clarify our mind and heart, then it actually frees up a lot of energy, you know, from the friction that we spend resisting the way things are. It frees up a lot of possibility for ways in which we can serve. And then for each of us uniquely, like that will present in a different way. So how we're called to serve in terms of social justice, like in terms of the arts, in terms of business. Uh, in terms of teaching, you know. So there's a beautiful Rumi poem about let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. So that sense of gratitude when it can overflow and then, you know, each of us finds our way, you know, to present that. So I have so much gratitude for the practice that I developed and uh, continue to develop in my life and the Dharma. And... uh, some of the ways that it served me is that it just has given me this confidence that whatever life delivers to me, sort of like the Dharma can meet that, you know, the Dharma can meet that, the practice can meet that. And I think in the beginning of practice, you know, it's, sometimes I use the analogy of it's like a, like a little food processor or something or juicer, you know, it was like a small blade. Like I have one that's like a $5 <laughs> one that I got from like Walgreens and it can chop some things, but you put something big in there and like it can't chop it really, you know, it gets stuck, right? But then as the practice gets stronger, then it's like, you know, you kind of upgrade that. So it's like a better juicer, right? So then it could juice more things. You know, like life throws you difficulties, you know, like health problems, relationship problems, financial problems, whatever. Things go well, things go badly, you know. So then the practice can start to, it's, it's like juice it. It's like composting or something, you know. can like turn that over. Like everything can become something that you can learn from, you know. So I have some friends who just got this... Um, some super-duper juicer, and um, they were telling me about it. You know, they were like, not only can it juice whole vegetables you put it in, but they were like, it can juice, like, a piece of cement. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, like, it can do anything. Like, there's nothing this juicer cannot handle. Like, you put a piece of wood in there, it's going to pop that up, right? You, and uh, I was like, wow, that's really cool. And I was like, oh, I feel like that's the practice now. I have such faith in the practice, you know. It's like, whatever comes that... That, 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 you know, as the practice develops, it's like industrial juicer, you know? <laughs> like, like, you can meet life. Like, you don't have to be afraid of things. You know, can be open and, like, uh, you can learn from it. You know, there's something to learn. And, and sometimes, you know, with something sort of fibrous and pulpy, it's like the blade, blade's a little bit like, you know? <laughs> but then it starts again, and it, it whirs, and it goes. And, like, um, I've seen this, uh, the investment that I've made in my own life, and... The investment includes just the orientation and interest in understanding, you know. The interest in paying attention, like when there's suffering there, like what is going on. You know, to, to really make that a focus of interest, to understand that, to see through that. And more, I'd say I'm more interested in that than anything, you know, than anything at all. So then whatever it is that comes up, like learn from that, you know, juice that, and your practice will serve you well. So I'll finish with a poem here from um, a a gratitude poem from W.S. Mervyn, and it's called Thank You. 
So listen, with the night falling, we are saying thank you. We're stopping on the bridges to bow for the railings. We're running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We're standing by the water, looking out in different directions. Back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging, after funerals, we're saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we're saying thank you. Looking up from tables, we're saying thank you. In a culture up to its chin in shame, living in the stench it has chosen, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we're saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators. Remembering wars and the police at the back door and the beatings on the stairs, we're saying thank you. In the banks that use us, we're saying thank you. With the crooks in office, with the rich and fashionable, unchanged, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, our lost feelings, we're saying thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we're saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us like the earth, we're saying thank you, faster and faster. With nobody listening, we're saying thank you. We're saying thank you and waving dark though it is. So thank you for your attention to the Dhamma. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for sharing Thanksgiving together. So we'll sit with our gratitude for one moment. So an appreciation for our life, for the opportunity to be here, for the Dhamma, and for this moment. We say thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.